And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, happy to be back in the studio. My very first interview on the show was with a New York State legislator who introduced the first cannabis legislation in New York in 2015. Stephen Katz also happened to be a veterinarian who was one of the first in the country to develop CBD supplements to treat dogs suffering with painful arthritis. So much has changed since then, and cannabis therapy for animals is now far more common than not for treating a wide variety of animal ailments, including cancer. But not all cannabis therapies are good for all canines, and like their human companions, each has unique conditions that respond to cannabinoids differently according to their size, weight, and breed. That happens to be something that my guest today knows a lot about. Her name is Dr. Trina Haza. She's one of the few board-certified veterinary oncologists who's trained in both traditional Chinese medicine and conventional veterinary medicine. Her quest for finding effective, integrative approaches for veterinary cancer patients led to her interest in cannabis. Over the last half decade, she's conducted extensive research on veterinary cannabis medicine and given numerous lectures to educate veterinarians about cannabis therapy for animals. In addition to her numerous credentials and certifications, Dr. Haza is a founder and co-president of the Veterinary Cannabis Society, which is a nonprofit advocating the safe use of cannabis in pets through education, advocacy, and promoting product standards. Dr. Haza, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Certainly welcome. Actually, my very first interview was called Cannabis for Canines. So this is sort of a special treat for me because that was back in 2016. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it doesn't seem that long ago, 2016, but in cannabis years, it was like 20 years ago. If you think about how far we've come just in the last four years. Yeah. Back then, it was kind of controversial to give German shepherds CBD for hip dysplasia. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's almost like the medicine has changed, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's it's certainly grown in credibility since then. And I think the scientific community is really beginning to take it very, very seriously. So I'm heartened to have read the critical review. It's quite impressive to me to see how far the science has come. And so it's a special treat to be speaking with you about this because I know that the potential for veterinary medicine with cannabis, with all of the different profiles that we're learning about, all of the different uses for cannabinoids, are really going to transform not just medicine for humans, but medicine for animals. And I know that you have a a specialty in oncology. Yes. Have you been treating animals with specific types of cancer with cannabis? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I've been so fortunate enough to be practicing in Los Angeles where I think people are looking for alternative modalities. And so it worked so well with what my passion is. And when you're a scientist, you get really into something for a while, and then you kind of know what you can know, you practice it for a while, and then you say, there's got to be more right? And so with me, that's really what happened is I started to do more alternative medicine and then inter- and then starting to do cannabis included in that. And then cannabis became really, I think, the most fascinating of the alternative modalities for me because I was seeing such success in my cancer patients. I was able to see significant pain reduction, uh, specific patients with, let's say, bone cancer, were just so painful and nothing would help. I mean, they were on opiates and and other pain, you know, uh, pharmaceutical pain medications, you know, multiple usually, and nothing was really touching the pain. And we would start, you know, owners were interested. They were asking, well, why can't I try this? And so um, for me, first and foremost was we needed to make sure it was a safe product, right? Like I didn't want to do anything that was going to hurt my patients. And so we kind of started talking about how do we make sure it's safe and and then let's try, let's try different formulations and be really cognizant that um, that dogs are much more sensitive to THC than any other species. And so we need to start very low and, you know, very slowly titrate or increase the dose so they can start to get their receptors essentially primed and used to it. So their body becomes used to the THC so they don't get toxicity. And so I've had many, I would say the majority of my clients are asking me about cannabis um, as an adjunct to whatever they're doing. And again, to go back to the ones that were in pain, we, we saw such improvements. I mean, I can't even tell you where these poor, you know, kids were just like, screaming. I mean, they hurt so bad from the bone pain. And all we did was, you know, start a cannabis product. Most of the cases, they would use it in conjunction with what they were using before the the pharmaceuticals. And they would say to me, you know, you know, when I give it every six or eight hours, it cuts the pain almost completely. And nothing else was able to do that. And, and does it work for every single dog with bone cancer or bone pain? No, I mean, nothing works like that. But I hadn't ever seen anything work, I would say, with s- such significant effect, right? And with so in so many patients. I have had some um, patients that have had tumors that have literally gone away just with the addition of cannabis. Some patients that really had appetite um, and nausea issues, right? And and secondary to the cancer or the chemotherapy or the radiation or whatever it may be. And cannabis um, really made such a difference in these pets' lives. And so I think it's a really good tool for oncologists to have. And and I think as time goes on and more research occurs, um, I do think veterinary oncologists will start to include it in their toolbox, if you will. Yeah, and rightly so. I mean, obviously, I think that humans have had great success too, not just treating the the pain and then the nausea and all of that from chemotherapy, but also in actually attacking the cancer. I mean, it has some, what's the word I'm looking for, anti-eptopic? Oh, uh, uh, what they call pro-apoptotic. So it's, it, it promotes the cell death. And so it has anti-proliferative or anti-cancer effects through, you know, multiple different modalities. And one of them is that it actually, both CBD and THC um, promote apoptosis, which is the, 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 when the cells actually commit suicide, if you will. 
Yeah. And so for that, I mean, and in conjunction with the chemotherapies, it, it seems to just enhance the way that the chemotherapy works from what I've read. And also, you know, in just preventing the, the death of other cells that aren't intended to be killed by the chemotherapy. Yeah. I mean, there's also, I also think if you look at the in vitro, right, so the Petri dish type information, there's lots of anti-neoplastic or anti-cancer effects, and there's so many different mechanisms, certainly, and preclinical models, lots of rodent models. Um, there's a, a more recent study that came out looking at three different cancer cell lines that showed that CBD was um, had anti-tumor effects in a Petri dish, but we need to just have more studies, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's like, yes, yeah, great to put for oncologists to put it in their toolbox, but they need to know how to use it and at what doses and which cannabinoids for which cancers. And um, anecdotally, God, I have so many cases that I could kind of use my gut feeling and what's been published to help kind of support my kind of discussion with the owner. But I think for veterinarians and veterinary oncologists, having essentially almost like a handbook, right, that says like, based off of this research, and I think the more we can have clinical research in dogs and cats would help us tremendously. And that's where the legal environment needs to kind of lighten so we can do more clinical research. I mean, I think that's super important. But yeah, that's been the problem. I mean, you know, that's that catch 22 that's been going on for decades now where people know that this is going to be helpful, but they can't do the study because it's illegal. And it won't be legal until we do the studies. <laughs> but, no, you're but totally right. Yeah. And that must be a source of frustration as a medical professional. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think what's really hard, too, is, you know, when the veterinary medical boards are saying, you know, there's just not enough research. And, you know, there's so many medications we use every day in practice that there isn't a lot of research, but it seems to be okay to use those. And um, I mean, as you saw in the review paper, I mean, there was over 100 different references. There's a lot of research on cannabis. So I, it's so hard to listen to the, there's not enough research. Yes, we need more clinical research, absolutely. But there's safety studies that confirm safety and those on THC, on CBD, I mean, on those major cannabinoids that people are looking for for their pets. So that is, I think, very hard, right? Because um, it's a barrier that I don't, I think the research thing, like we need to do more clinical research, but to say there's no safety studies and things like that, there's certainly, I think there are a lot of safety studies and there are a lot of medications. I mean, I can speak from an oncologist perspective. Many of the medications we use in oncology are a heck of a lot more toxic than um, cannabis is. Well, even the medicines that are used for pain or anxiety, and you look at the opiates and the benzodiazepines, especially in vulnerable patients, it's astonishing that they've ever even passed muster with the FDA. I mean, and in fact, I think if I'm not mistaken, you might know this better than I do, but they only require like 30% efficacy to get something passed. Oh, I didn't even know that. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, if there are deaths that occur during a clinical study, no matter what size it is, you know, it seems to be like, okay, as, as long as it's under a certain threshold. But you look at the hundreds of thousands of deaths that have occurred just with opiates alone, and you, you think that a lot of those patients 
probably could have treated their pain with cannabis. <laughs> and cannabis seems to be a lot safer than any of those pharmaceuticals. But, you know, they're necessary, obviously, in critical cases or acute pain. Well, and the combination might be okay, right? That's the other thing is there are studies supporting that cannabis can help with you know, opiate withdrawal and even just reducing the dose of opiates um, in people, right? Like the, the cannabinoids work on the opiate receptors as well. And so I think that there is some crossover with how they work. You know, you look at the cannabinoids and the terpenoids, many of them work through anti-inflammatory mechanisms. So you may see that kind of synergistic effect in helping reduce pain when they're on opiates and cannabinoids. There was a study that was published last year in dogs looking at dogs with osteoarthritis. These dogs were on no opiates, but on gabapentin for pain. And what they did was they realized that the majority of those cases, the CBD dominant hemp-based product, and it, it was actually full spectrum. It had THC in it. It had some other cannabinoids and terpenoids. And basically what it showed is the majority of those patients were able to either discontinue or reduce the dose of gabapentin. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, I always wondered too, when dogs were on opiates, they actually get the withdrawals and they can't tell you how they're feeling. But, you know, I wanted to just touch on the study too, because you looked at a lot of different disease types. Were you able to analyze the effects of different cannabinoids and what works best for pets? Yeah, I mean, so if you look through the review, I created these tables and was able to actually compare all the studies. So in that table at the bottom, it talks about the format of the products. Was it a tincture? Was it a treat? Was it a capsule? Was it IV? Whatever it may be. And then what the products contained. And so none of those studies, even though many of those products were full spectrum, they didn't really evaluate the other cannabinoids. It was so focused on CBD. There was few of the studies that looked that came from a product um, that's made in Maine that is a full spectrum that has almost a one-to-one -one CBD to CBDA, the acid form of CBD. And in their discussion, they certainly reviewed the effects of CBDA in its, you know, its anti-inflammatory effects, specifically COX-2 inhibition, one of the ways it can reduce inflammation. And that could be why there was this positive effect with this product on osteoarthritis. But they, you know, that's something that still has to be done. I think that each of the cannabinoids really need to be evaluated for so much, right? How high can we go with CBDA, THCA? How high can we go with CBG? If you look at the rodent models, you look at, you know, humans, I mean, th some of those cannabinoids, you can go really high, like CBC, CBG. The question, though, is how high do you really have to go to get efficacy? You're not trying to like oversaturate receptors and oversaturate the body. You just want to be able to have the effect you're looking for. And I, you know, C the acids, THCA and CBDA are actually way better absorbed than CBD and THC orally in dogs. And the truth is, how are we going to really know that unless you expose the animal to one at a time? And what my guess you'll see is that most conditions, you're going to need more than just one cannabinoid to do the trick at the doses that we're using. Like if you were to use one cannabinoid by itself, like CBD for osteoarthritis, you're going to have to go pretty darn high. The study showed that 
some of these dogs were needing to get, you know, 50 milligrams of CBD to reduce arthritis signs. And then a subsequent study, that full spectrum study with the gabapentin, some of these dogs were on 0 0.25, 0 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, which is a really small dose. But do you see, because of the other cannabinoids, it allowed it to work maybe just as effectively than just an isolate by itself. I think cancer would be a little bit different where I do think that specific cannabinoids and terpenoids are playing the anti-cancer role in a major way for the specific cancer. And so my gut feeling tells me that down the road with genetic testing and markers and so forth to actually practice what we would consider more personalized medicine and targeted medicine, my gut is that I think we're going to figure out which cannabinoids are really needed for which cancers and at what doses. I did an interview last year um, with a guy who was doing the genetic studies and actually taking DNA profiles from patients and then matching those to the specific cannabinoids. It was a fascinating study. But let me ask you this, too. Have you worked with nanotechnologies like liposomal technologies to actually encapsulate some of these so that they're water soluble and not oil? Um, you know, it's funny you say that because I think that some pet parents, they go on their own and they get something and then they say, Dr. Azar, I want to show you what I got. And then I'll say, okay, can we just make sure it's safe first thing? So let's just look at all the ingredients, make sure there's not xylitol and other stuff if it's a human product. Um, and then uh, some of them are absolutely water soluble or nano or liposome encapsulated. Um, in my experience, no, I don't necessarily see them work any better. Again, the, the subset that do that are going to be much lower than the ones that are just on an oil-based tincture. That's the most common form in animals, right? Or treats, right? Those are gonna be the most two, the most common two forms. Um, but there are people that have, and we'll use them. And I've not necessarily been like, you know, wowed by the, the experience any different than what I normally see. I, I think the problem is, is that a lot of these claims that their products are way more bioavailable and, you know, but they're not necessarily tested in, an, in, in dogs or cats. These are rodent studies. And so how do we actually say that that's the same in a dog's gut or a cat's gut? We already know that cats certainly metabolize and eliminate cannabinoids differently than dogs do. There was a study looking at that. So you know, there's enough research to support that giving food, like a fatty meal or a, a fatty treat for your dog, I usually tell them to give it with a nut butter, right? Like a spoon of peanut butter, or almond butter or whatever. Let's give that with the cannabis formulation. There's, you know, a three to four times increase in bioavailability just doing that. So I think a company would have to really show that it is superior to that to spend the extra money and kind of go down that road. Why not just use an oil based and give it with a nut butter is what I would say until you can prove differently. Do animals metabolize fats better than humans do? God, it's like you ask me these like vet questions and I don't know anything about veterinary medicine, it seems. Let's see. You ask me about cannabis, I'll tell you everything. But do they? I don't know that. My gut is telling me, nah, I don't think we'd think that. No, I would say it's probably the same, but there might be a real answer out there that I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I, I'm one of those, <laughs> a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing kind of people. <laughs> I, I can tell. I absolutely, this is, I think, one of my most favorite interviews because you, you obviously know your stuff. And so I think it's, I think it's awesome because I can only imagine you know your stuff about all the people you interview. And so you must be uh, full of knowledge.
Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I think this is just such a fascinating topic, and I definitely appreciate where you're coming from with this. And, you know, your animals are the better for it as well. I've done a lot of uh, volunteer work with an organization called the Paw Project. There are a lot of cats that are put into employment by the film industry. And the big cats were declawed before they were put on a set because the insurance companies wouldn't insure them unless they were declawed. But a lot of observation would tell you that these cats are more dangerous after they're declawed because they're in pain. Because obviously the the declawing is the amputation. And then these cats are walking around for years with like a pebble in their shoe from the tendons snapping back and pulling pieces of bone. And they were in pain physically, visibly. You could see it just the way they walk and shake their paws as they take every step. I mean, it was just tragic. And so I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but Jenny Conrad is a veterinarian. Oh, of course. Yeah, Yeah, she's a friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I volunteered with her filming for the Paw Project documentary, but a lot of that footage in there was mine. So cool. What a small world. I know it is. Anyway, within hours of having a surgery to repair the paws, they would be chewing off their bandages and walking like normal after the surgery. It was just astonishing. But, you know, I often wonder, looking back on that time, how much these animals, especially like 600 pound animals, could have really benefited from having cannabis therapy to get through that pain. Absolutely. I mean, even the ones that are in like sanctuaries and, you know, in say in in Asia, those, those poor elephants, right? Like some of them are in so much pain and you think to yourself, like, what if they could have a little bit, right? And see if that makes a difference and relieves anxiety. I mean, there's, there's certainly lots of horses that are on cannabis now, right? And um, they don't need, you know, 5,000 milligrams necessarily. There are courses responding at 50 milligrams of CBD. Um, and so I think with for anxiety, for pain, for laminitis, you know, the typical things that, that may create pain being in, you know, standing on their feet all the time, being in a barn, you know, like whatever it may be. I just think there are so many animals that could benefit. And I think as you travel the world and see all the animals in different places, you almost just want to bring medication, right? Like, here's some cannabis for you. And there's now a very stressed monkey. Let's give some cannabis, you know, and it's just, it's, I think that even back then, when, when you think of like the hemp fields and the marijuana fields and how animals kind of knew to walk over and have a nibble, right? They just knew that it was medicine for them. Yeah, well, I think that humans know on a, you know, subliminal level that cannabis is good. And I think that's why you see so many teenagers who are just raging with hormones gravitating toward cannabis. They're not derelicts. They're just smart. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. And then for years, right after the 1971 Drug Act was passed, officers uh, running around and eliminating all of the natural hemp that was growing in forests. (laughs) Ridiculous, good taxpayer dollars going to work. You know, the poor animals, they didn't have that medicine anymore. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Well, I think it's, you know, you think it's like it's your own internal endocannabinoid system, right? Like that, that's probably what drives you toward and drives the animal toward one particular chemovar versus another. It drives us toward, you know, uh, you know, as people say, I'm more of an indica, I'm more of a sativa, whatever 
they think that might mean, you know, it's really just chemovar-based and terpenoid-based and figuring out that there's a terpene that really is just better for you, right? Like, you know, there are certain people that respond much better to uppers, right? Like, like an Adderall, right? Like an ADD person, and I can speak because I am I have an A of ADHD, I, like being on something like that for me, I focus so well. I can actually keep my thoughts in line, right? And I'm not all over the place and distracted. So I, for me, like I'm generally going to move toward more of the sativa-ish based, or I use that terminology because people, I think, understand that. But really, it's more things like terpenoline and limonene and those specific terp- terpenes that really give you a little bit more energy focused and alpha-pinene. Like these are all focusing and it's it's almost kind of like a natural Adderall, if you will. And if there are some people that are already maybe in that space and need something that brings them down, and they're going to be more apt to be drawn to something that has more mercine, that might be a little bit or linalool that might kind of, you know, relax them and relax their muscles. And right, if you allow your sense of smell and taste to help figure what's right for your body. If we could actually really listen to our body, and I think cannabis helps with that. When you really start to understand cannabis and the science behind it and understanding how the endocannabinoid system works, you start to really know your body in a way that you didn't know it before. And I think that helps you treat your body naturally, not just with cannabis, but with other modalities and really feeling what your body is going through versus just thinking. I don't know if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And because you've been working with cannabis, you can probably get a really good feel for which breed of animal is going to respond better to the indica or sativa profiles and the different terpenes. And most people don't even realize that the endocannabinoid system is in every single mammal on the planet. I mean, it's such a critical system in your body that (laughs) controls so many different things from autoimmune responses to inflammation to pain receptors and everything else. I mean, it's pretty interesting. That just the fact that the endocannabinoid plays a critical role in basically every single body system. And if you don't have a receptor in a particular area in your body, but you have damage um, or an illness in that area, your body has the ability to actually start making receptors in that area, which I think is fascinating. It is fascinating. And, you know, when you talk about cannabis, one really huge shame is that judgment is part of it. The stigma is part of it. And getting over that is 90% of moving toward a a more equitable system in terms of the way we treat cannabis and drug abuse in general. Personally, I think they should legalize all plant-based medicine and let people do what they need to do to take care of themselves, you know. Exactly. And the combinations of them too, you know, now with psilocybin and MDMA being such a major player in the mental health space, right? And is there a combination where like there's enough trauma that cannabis isn't going to touch your trauma, right? And so maybe you need to go a little bit more and go to like a low dose MDMA or psilocybin and, and then potentially then use cannabis for maintenance, you know? I mean, is there something, could, could that be something? Um, and it's tough. It's so tough. This is just silly. Why are, you know, the, the drugs that people are using for mental health that are legal, that are pharmaceuticals, really just take such a toll on their lives. 
And so why not give them a chance with something natural, especially in states like Colorado, where you actually get physicians to sit by you and kind of help you through it. So you're not alone in a dark place, you know, like you are actually going through a therapeutic journey, if you will. And I think that is, I think that's really wonderful. And I think it's really needed in a significant population. Life's not easy sometimes. Well, and especially now we're a nation of PTSD. Um, you know, everything that's happened in the last year, especially, has just been so incredibly devastating to so many people. And, you know, with COVID, and that was something else I wanted to ask you about. Have you have you found um, or have you seen animals who have been diagnosed with COVID? It didn't seem to me that it would be zoonotic in that way. But I don't know. I've, I read something just the other day that German Shepherd was diagnosed with COVID. And I thought, uh, well, COVID's common in cats. Mm-hmm. Corona. Yeah, it is coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, obviously, it's, it's a thing, and especially in the feral cat population, right? Exactly. But, but if a human has coronavirus, is an animal going to get it and vice versa? Yeah, I don't think I would say the likelihood is very low only because, yeah, there's been a few cases, right? The w- the first one was that the, the cat at the Bronx Zoo, right? The big cat at the Bronx Zoo. Um, and then there's been a few, I believe there are a few other large cats um, that have gotten it. I know there's been at least one case in a domestic cat, if not more. There was a case I remember, and I thought it was a German Shepherd, I'm pretty sure that was in New York, um, that tested positive for COVID and died. And they said, well, it must have been from COVID. But then when they evaluated the blood work and this, this poor dog had leukemia. And so the likelihood is, I mean, from an oncologist perspective, if that's the case, then I, then I think it was probably leukemia. So I think it's easy to jump to conclusions. And I, I think there's no way to say that they got it from the owner. But I think it would be really rare. I mean, to be honest with you, it, working in a clinic, I mean, all we do is see animals owned by people that could very well, you know, have COVID. And so dogs are still licking us and hugging us and I mean, thank God for our patients and so many of them being so sweet and kind. And it's like nothing in the world is better than being loved by your animal during times like this. Right. And so. Oh, I agree. Yeah. It's like, you know, I go to work and I have a pit bull or a Labrador or whatever it may be giving me kisses under like trying to get my mask off with their tongue, you know. And so. uh, Oh, so sweet. (laughs) I'm very, I'm very lucky to have job. But the, the, the point I say this is that we're not so terrified that we're going to get COVID as, you know, as the dog almost being the fomite, right, bringing it from the owner, or the dog actually having it, or cat having it and giving it to us. I think because the risk is still so low, despite the few cases, we just wash our hands after every patient. And we certainly are respectful. And, you know, we oftentimes will give them new leashes and, you know, when we bring them back out, so they don't feel like there's anything that was contaminated by us. We just do the best we can. But either way, it's certainly from the cases that you and I just described, I think that it can happen. I just think the risk of it is fairly low. That's actually good to know, because in my neighborhood, there are people walking their dogs and their dogs are always coming up to me and of course they are, because they know you love dogs. Yeah, Dogs are very picky. <laughs> I'm afraid of people who repel animals, <laughs> you know? I, oh, they always, your animal always tells you, right? You're like, mm, my dog doesn't like you, so I'm going to go the other way. <laughs> exactly. It's so true. Yeah, exactly. So I want to get a couple more bits of information from you before we start wrapping this up. 
And one is, what's the most critical thing you'd like pet owners to know about the option of cannabis in general, you know, for the dogs? I think knowing that cannabis can be an option for a variety of different conditions and diseases, um, and with the main ones in veterinary medicine showing the most promise being osteoarthritis or pain conditions in general, um, seizure disorders, cancer, anxiety, inflammatory bowel disease, or just inflammatory diseases in general of different areas, including, say, the brain or the bladder or wherever it may be. those would be kind of the top ones. If your pet has heart disease, that's not one of the reasons I would necessarily use cannabis or kidney disease or, you know, like I think that the ones that have shown the most promise are the ones I just said. But I would also say to you, it doesn't mean it's definitely going to work. Um, just like any medication, the, the, the same product isn't going to work for every single pet. But even more than just every medication, because so much of how cannabis works is based off of your internal endocannabinoid system, to me, it just you have to figure out which product works best and at what dose and how often. Everything is so personalized with cannabis that you really have to be patient. So if you try a product in your pet for, let's call it arthritis, and you don't see success, it doesn't mean cannabis or CBD or whatever it may be doesn't work for your pet. It just means it may have been the wrong product, the wrong dose, the wrong timing. You're not giving it with a fatty meal. There's so many factors. So I would say if you have questions, pet owners out there, you have questions about what's right and and what's really accurate. I see so much information online. What's really accurate? Um, for all the pet owners that have questions, we have a um, a nonprofit called Veterinary Cannabis Society that is going to be open for memberships in the next few months and memberships for the veterinary professional as well as the pet parent and some of the the industry professionals as well. Um, And for pet parents, this will be a wonderful site to go to to get information on accurate, you know, articles and podcasts and presentations. And so if you want to learn a little bit more about how to pick a good product for your pet, what is a certificate of analysis? Um, Hear from some of the veterinary cannabis experts out there um, about some of the nuances and details about cannabis that might be able to help your pet. Um, Please join because that's, I'm, I'm one of the founders and the president of this society. And I think that having a site or a place for people to go that's that's compassionate and non-judgmental and really here to just give you information um, so you do feel more armed, if you will, to, to help um, your pet. What is the website? It's uh, So it's called Veterinary Cannabis Society, and you can go to veterinarycannabissociety.org. This society is the first nonprofit 501c3 organization that's focused on raising awareness of cannabis as medicine for animals. And we do that through education and advocacy. That's fantastic. So I'll definitely put that up on the website when this episode is archived so that people can find it. And then one other thing I wanted to ask you is for people out there who who hear this and, and understand that cannabis can be safe for animals, is there anything you would tell them about what not to do if they have a dog that's suffering with arthritis or hip dysplasia and they're in pain or for whatever reason and they think, well, you know, I've got this for myself. Why don't I give my pet a little bit? Is there any danger or warning that they should look out for? 
Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, absolutely, there are. First, I, I would say that the number one contraindication in using cannabis in pets, um, in my opinion, is heart disease and not just mild, not mild heart disease, severe heart disease. Your dog or cat is already on cardiac medications um, and you're seeing a cardiologist. And, um, and the reason is, is that uh, cannabis, especially specifically THC and even CBD at really high doses um, have the potential to increase the heart rate, which can be really hard on a heart that's already having difficulty. And so if you put more strain on the heart, um, there's the potential to push push your animal into heart failure if your dog or cat already has, you know, fairly significant heart disease. It also has the possibility of causing arrhythmias. And so it, it's, it's, it's important that you understand that maybe your pet um, either isn't a candidate if your pet has really, really bad heart disease, or if it, if you insist that the benefit outweighs the risk, or you speak to your veterinarian and you guys are on the same page, then maybe speaking with a cannabis, um, someone that is well-versed in cannabis and having your vet reach out or you reach out to really try to find someone. And there's, you know, an organization called veterinarycannabis.org that does, um, parent consults and veterinary consults. I'm actually going to be doing a consultation service in the upcoming months as well. So I can just be more available to help with things like that. So you don't feel so alone and vets don't feel alone if they don't know the answer. But, you know, if you still feel again, that the benefit outweighs a the risk, then there are ways of safely doing it. And it might just be microdosing, right? Very small doses to get the body used to the cannabinoids so we don't have some of those side effects. So it may be as simple as that, or you may get the consultation and find that the benefit doesn't outweigh the risk for your pet. So big contraindication would be heart. And then from a, there are, you know, that is def definitively the biggest one I would say. Um, blood pressure, if your pet has blood pressure issues already, there is the potential that cannabis can cause hypotension or reduction in blood pressure. So just keep that in mind. That may actually be good for your pet if your pet already is say has high blood pressure, um, but something to keep in mind certainly. And then from a product standpoint, um, what I would say is if you have a product that you're using at home and you just love it and you think, God, my, look over to the, the, your, the side and you see your pet limping and you say, you know what, I'm going to start this. Just be really careful. Ask your vet. Ask one of those organizations. Um, really get some really dig a little deeper because what I worry about with a lot of these human products is that they're either very, very high amounts of cannabinoids like THC that could be toxic to dogs. And when I say toxic, I the, the chance of a dog actually dying of THC is so low, even when given at very high doses. They can the, the the reason that pets I think pass away from cannabis is that usually because it's in a tr it's in you know a brownie or it's given with raisins or it's given with something else that uh, that has toxicity. There is no actual lethal dose of THC in dogs. Um, However, if given at exceedingly high doses, what ends up happening, and this is, could be a product that's your product that has very high doses, and you give it to your pet and they essentially become, you know, they, they become almost comatose, right? They, they're, they're just laying there. They can't move. They can't do much. And if they aspirate, 
they could, you know, develop pneumonia and have difficulty breathing or just have difficulty breathing immediately from aspiration, which is what um, a very, you know, a 1980 study showed that no dog actually died from cannabis directly. It was due to an aspiration um, because the pet was in such a bad state. So if your pet, if you, if your pet ever gets into something where it ends up having um, some severe toxicity like this, bring them in and have your veterinary, your veterinarian in the veterinary hospital, you know, hospitalize your pet and just support your pet and help them kind of get through that time. Most cases of, uh, you know, cannabis or, or marijuana, specifically high THC cannabis um, overdose, most of those cases do fine at home. You just watch them. Sometimes they can take 12 hours. Sometimes it only takes eight hours. Depends on how much they ingest in their metabolism and elimination. Um, but a lot of times just monitoring them, making sure that they're not dehydrated and that they're safe. And if you're ever worried, just bring your pet into the veterinarian. Um, but really being careful that you're not just giving your product without at least asking your vet or a professional about the safety and making sure there's no toxins within your product. Again, I keep bringing up xylitol because that's an artificial sweetener that we're finding in everything nowadays, including cannabis-based products and tinctures and and chewy treats and things like that. And that can certainly be toxic to dogs. Wow, that's great information. And thank you for that. And um, Like I said, I'll put information about how people can learn more about this from you on the website when we archive the episode. But thank you so much for being here and for all this great information. I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. I've I've like so much enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I could talk for another hour with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed this as well. So thank you for that. And well, I'd love to have you back. It is time to start wrapping it up. Once again, I'd like to personally thank my guest, Dr. Trina Hazaf, for sharing her insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that she's doing or about cannabis in veterinary medicine, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And there I will post her bio along with information and a link to her website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsor, Canosphere Biotech. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And many thanks to our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least... Thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join us again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreens come.